Life is not a competition, but it's often viewed this way. Competition is ingrained into our sinful DNA in which we're born into together. For instance, if you take a look around you, you will find in nature an animal kingdom that is always competing with one another. Scientist Charles Darwin coined the phrase, coined the phrase survival of the fittest as a way to speak of the realities of competition in nature. I've witnessed this firsthand at home as Angela and I put together a, a hummingbird feeder and we set it up on our deck so that we could watch these beautiful birds come and eat. And we've had at least three of them come to the feeder, but what I've noticed is that hummingbirds are very territorial. So one of those birds actually is a bully to the other two. And every time they show up to the feeder, he flies in and makes sure that they scatter away. Competition is all around us. For instance, have you ever noticed how young children compete for the attention of their parents or for their caregivers? In fact, sometimes this need for attention or approval or favor between siblings can last long into adulthood. And whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, education is also a competition. Certainly our teachers do not view their work as creating competition between students, but the structures of the educational system foster competitive learning through our academically gifted programs or through our grade point average system or by also acknowledging one's personal achievements by class rank or even by their SAT or ACT or other exam scores. Even in our educational system in our public school and private school system, we have valedictorians who are at the top of the class and they're awarded the opportunity to address the graduating class as the smartest of all of the students there. Sports. Most sports are founded upon competition. Think about it. One has to try out to make the team, all the while then competing against those who are on their team for playing time, all the while competing against another team to be the better team. We create tournaments where the best of the best gather together and compete against one another until we can crown an ultimate champion. Our work, no matter what it is, can also be competitive Businesses compete with one another to make the most money, to have a monopoly on the services that they provide. This separates the giants, the corporations, from the little guys, the small businesses. But even churches can compete against one another for members, wanting to have other folks come to their church because, you know, we're the best church on the block. And how could we forget competition in the political sphere? I mean, I don't know about you, but I am sick and tired of seeing commercials on my TV set every time they pop up of political advertisements telling me who I should be voting for or voting against, or even when I go to my mailbox and find a mailer in it every single day. But politics is about competition, competing against your opponent in order to hold an office. And even in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the hope and the prayers that we can have a vaccine that will eradicate this coronavirus. Coronavirus research is a competition because whoever creates that vaccine that works first has power and the ability to give it to whomever they choose to or to create the selling price at whatever they want it to be. Are you competitive? 
Now, as your pastor, I have to be honest with you because my family will tell you firsthand that I'm probably one of the most competitive people you'll ever meet. It doesn't matter if I'm playing a pickup basketball game or playing church softball, or even if I'm just playing a simple game of Uno or Scrabble, I want to win. I do not play games to lose. But I have to confess with you that sometimes I will lose on purpose so that others, particularly my children, will continue to play with me. Certainly, we know the competitive nature of human beings and of the world in general, and so does the Apostle Paul. So as we continue our series, our sermon series from Romans entitled, A Different Perspective, Paul reminds the church in Rome that life is definitely not a competition. Now, he is addressing Gentile converts, Christians in Rome, who live in the epicenter of the political and the cultural, the economic and militaristic capital of the known world. Rome is responsible for crucifying the Lord Jesus. And yet the only Lord that is supposed to be acknowledged Lord in the Roman Empire is Caesar. Paul is writing a letter to a group of Christians who are dealing with the realities of worldly power and competition on all fronts. And much like us, they are completely surrounded by competition. And truth be told, they are also easily influenced to buy into it. Last week, Steve preached on the preceding verses in which Paul urged the church to not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This preceding verse sets the stage for our passage today from Romans. Paul tells us this, By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ we, though, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. See, apparently Paul was aware of the tendency for church members to become competitive too, and to be competitive with one another. He sees a real danger in this, and so he draws attention to it. Yet he frames everything that he says in the context of God's grace. Now, this word grace is a churchy word that we use all the time in the church, and it literally means undeserved favor. Paul's message begins with God's grace given to him, and it then urges the church to acknowledge the gift of grace that God has also given to them. In other words, we, the church, have received God's grace as a gift. It's not something that we've earned and it's not something that we can compete for. Therefore, if grace is God's gift to us, we shouldn't get a big head when it comes to what we do inside or outside of the church, or, nor should we look down upon others as if we're competing against them to earn God's favor. This happened to be the downfall of many of the Pharisees who thought that their righteousness was greater than all of the sinners who violated God's law. Jesus, knowing their egos, tells them in Matthew 21, verses 31 and 32, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Paul instructs the church not to be worldly, not to think too highly of themselves or to compete with one another. For mixing our egos with grace is a real problem and it leads us to competition which can divide the body of Christ. And this makes the church absolutely no different from the rest of the world. You see, so often our competitive spirits lead us to put ourselves first. And it's not that God doesn't create us as individuals. God certainly does create us as individuals. It's not wrong to be our own person, nor is it wrong to give our very best in everything that we do. God expects our very best in everything that we do. But the problem is, is when things go awry, is when we view the church only through our own lens, refusing to see the collective calling of every member of the body of Christ. Things get out of whack when we think that our spiritual gifts that God has given to us are more important or better than others. Things get messy when we try to become the leader at the expense of others or when we dismiss the thoughts of others by talking over them or trying to be the loudest voice in the room. You see, while individual, individualism runs rampant in our society, it can also run, run rampant within the church as well. Paul says that the church is made up of individuals, but that these individuals form one collective body. And so we are members of this body together, and every member is equally important to the work towards the good of the whole body. And he talks more and most clearly about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about being the body of Christ and that not one member can tell another member that they're not important or that they don't need them. Even so, even though Paul says this to the church, he understands that we, the church members, are influenced by the world. We see individualism promoted over working together as a team. Now, I believe that if football had existed in Paul's day, he probably would have used it as an analogy here to explain his point. You see, a football team requires a lot of players to play. Some of them play on offense and some of them play on defense, but only 11 players, whether they're on offense or defense, can play on the field for a team at a time. And even though the team is made up of offensive and defensive units, most often all of the glory goes to the quarterback who runs the offense by either passing the ball, handing the ball off, or running the ball himself. And so when the most valuable player discussion often comes up, it's almost always a quarterback who is awarded that trophy. In fact, if you look at last year's NFL MVP candidates, the top five candidates that were listed for voting, four of those five individuals were quarterbacks, and one was a wide receiver. And the quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens, Lamar Jackson, was the one who was unanimously chosen as the regular season MVP. And when it came to the Super Bowl, it was Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, who was unanimously voted as the MVP of the Super Bowl. Nonetheless, the quarterback position is an important role for the team to succeed. But the quarterback alone cannot be the sole reason for the team's success. 
think about it for a moment. The offensive linemen have to protect the quarterback from being sacked by the defense. If they don't do their job well, it doesn't matter if you're Joe Montana, one of the greatest quarterbacks ever, or Tom Brady. You can be an incredible quarterback, but if you don't have a good offensive line to protect you, you will not have time to throw the ball to an open receiver. You will get sacked. But no one ever talks about how great the offensive line is. Linemen don't win the most valuable player award. Nor do we often see defensive players get talked about as candidates for most valuable player either. Now, when I was a child growing up playing backyard football, all of my friends would get together and we would argue over who wanted to be the quarterback. Isn't that what we do? We all argue because we know that the quarterback is the one who gets the ball. The quarterback is the one who is in control. The quarterback is the one who, who runs the offense. And the quarterback is the one who gets all of the glory. And I find sometimes that church members do the exact same thing. Sometimes we want to all be the quarterback. We want to call the plays. We want to execute the offense. We want to be in control. The quarterbacks get all of the glory and they can see their leadership as most important. If you look at the life of the disciples and their ministry with Jesus, you will find even within the group of 12, James and John and Mark's gospel, they go directly to Jesus without the other disciples knowing about it, and they ask him specifically if when he comes into his glory, if they can sit at his left and his right as he rules as king. Now they thought that Jesus was going into Jerusalem to kick out the Roman occupiers and to become the king of Israel and set up God's kingdom on earth. They had no idea that Jesus was going to be crucified. But when the other 10 disciples found out what they had done, they were angry with them for trying to jump in front of the line. So Jesus teaches them a valuable lesson. He instructs them not to act like the Gentiles who lord themselves over one another. Instead, that they are to be servants of one another. He says, whoever wants to be first must become last and the servant of all. Paul is reiterating Jesus' stance on how we're called to live as a church. While we are individuals who've been given different spiritual gifts, and according to Paul, according to the grace given to each of us, we are not called to individualism, but to be a united community of faith who uses our gifts collectively together to the glory of God and not for ourselves. In fact, we're kind of like a football team. Each one of us has a role to play and will be called upon to make a play when it's appropriate for us to do so. But everyone can't be the quarterback. And honestly, the team can't, can't succeed if everyone tries to do that. The fact is, is that we need linemen. We need safeties. We need receivers and tight ends. We need running backs and cornerbacks. We even need punters and kickers. And the team must work together according to the plan laid out by the coach if we want to be successful in carrying out God's mission and work together. This requires us to practice it requires us to encourage one another. It requires us to challenge one another, to pick each other up when we can't go anymore. It requires us to step up when a player gets injured or can no longer 
play, it requires us to acknowledge that every single player is equally important to the ultimate goal of winning as a team. You see, Paul talks an awful lot in all of his letters about the church being bound together in Christ, which means that we're not just individuals seeking to be the most valuable player, seeking Jesus' favor but that we have been incorporated into the life of Jesus, which leads us to live differently by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is true for all who confess Christ as Lord and Savior. And it means that you and I are not called to compete with one another in the church to gain the favor of God. We have been gifted God's favor through his grace. Nor is a particular church to be an island in and of itself competing with each other as if we are competing for members so that we can be the largest church in our communities or in the nation or in the world. Nor are we to think that we are the only right church and that we have the only right theology. We've been crucified with Jesus We are dead to sin, and we are made alive in Christ. Our lives are meant to be lived together communally, bound by Christ our Lord. Once again, Paul reiterates this in his letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, saying this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You see, life is not a competition, even though the ways of the world would lead us to believe that it is. And the church of Jesus Christ is not called to compete with one another from within nor from without. Instead, we are to acknowledge God's grace given to us, a grace that's not earned or deserved, but gifted because of God's unconditional love for us. And that grace leads us to serve Jesus together as a team, using all of our gifts together that he has graciously given uh, to us, not to our glory, but to his. So whether it's teaching a Sunday school class, or leading a small group, whether it's leading a mission trip, or a fellowship gathering, or leading worship, or writing a note of encouragement to someone, or organizing meals for a family who's struggling with their health, Each and every gift is important. Each and every gift has a purpose and is used collectively to serve God's people and to give praise to God. And professionally, your vocation, the word vocation in Latin means to call, a calling. You are called by God to serve in your respective roles, whatever they are. Whether you're a doctor or a teacher or 
an operator of a business, whether you're a caregiver or a student or a contractor, whatever it is that you do for a living professionally, do your work to the glory of God, not to compete against others in order to make yourself shine, but to serve those that God has entrusted into your care so that they may clearly see God's grace at work in your life. Friends, that is my prayer for all of us. That's Paul's prayer for the church in Rome, and it's Paul's prayer for the church today. That together, you and I would seek to be God's people, the church, under God's grace, using our gifts collectively, not competing against one another or jockeying for position, but working together, united in Christ, to serve Christ and to serve Christ's people in our community and all over the world together. Friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.